0: Think about uh, a temporary workspace uh, lounge, right? Like the ticket takers lounge or something like that. You probably go in, there's some folding chairs, maybe some F&B set out. Why not design that particular area like a suite? And I'm not, not saying that everyone has the budget to do so, but don't you think that those temporary workers who one of the challenges is keeping, retaining those hourly workers, don't you think that psychologically they would feel better if they were taking their rest break in a luxury suite type area? maybe put a Nintendo Switch in there, maybe put some really good food and beverage in there. If they understand that you're treating them as a premium client, don't you think that they will then treat your premium clients the way that they should be?
1: Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss
2: the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry.
1: I am Josh Lipman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions
2: make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros
1: Podcast. Hey, Matt, how's it going?
2: It's going fantastically. Josh, how are you?
1: I'm oh, doing very well. Thanks for Good. asking. Of course. Question for you. Bring it. If I were to say premium experience, are there any experience for you that come to mind that you reflect on of experiences that that you've had or, or partake? It could be the attractions industry or anywhere else. And you said that was a premium experience.
2: I'm going to go back to one that you've heard before. Okay. I'm pretty sure you've heard it before. Um, It's going to sound so simple and so small, but I felt like this was a premium experience. It's when I went to a hotel and I walked in the door of my hotel room and there was already ice, fresh ice in the ice bucket. Because what that told me was that somebody was thinking about me and my experience. And there's probably other things I can think of, you know, that I've I've experienced in my life, but that was a premium experience that probably took very little effort. How's that? The cool thing about it's
1: very good. The cool thing about that experience is that many people probably wouldn't think anything of it, but you being Matt Heller, you made the connection of not only did they fill my ice bucket, but it means that someone was here recently which meant that they knew that i was checking in downstairs and there was all this happening behind the scenes to now give me because because ice you know it melts right it wasn't like when how you can it over this morning like i'd be greeted by a a pool of water right here you know if, if you walked in if that was the case but it's like no they knew that i was arriving and they did something that could only be done right upon arrival so it's a it's a cool example
2: now some i did tell that story to someone and they said Oh, you probably just went into somebody else's room, <laughs> which fair enough, but nobody else showed up. So, well, there you go. So there you go. How about you? Do you have a premium experience?
1: I think of a few things, but but here's one that comes to mind and we'll, we'll deconstruct why it felt premium. Well, it, it was premium, but it was, it was kind of why I, I think that this is a good example and tie into today's interview. We actually recorded a whole podcast about this, but it's been, almost five years since we did it, because this was about Mardi Gras in 2019. Mardi Gras, as many people know, is a very crowded event that takes place on a very narrow, small street in New Orleans, Bourbon Street. And when I was there for my bachelor party, my friends and I, we were debating back and forth on do we casually walk in and experience it normally or do we kind of upgrade to this premium experience? And there was a venue that offered, uh, you know, it was, it was a balcony so you could stand and watch the the street. There was a, a private staircase. There was a, a full uh, a buffet all day long. And we're talking like not like a pizza buffet. We're talking like carving station like buffet that was cycled yeah. out throughout the day. And most importantly, private restrooms, which is something that's very difficult to find at Mardi Gras. It was not cheap whatsoever to do that. And we were really going back and forth. And after we did it, we recognized that we really made the right decision because it was worth every single dollar that we spent on it. And the reason why is because most of us had never done that experience before. I've never never gone to Mardi Gras before and probably weren't going to again. And I realized if this is gonna be the one time I'm gonna do it, I wanna do it right. And so it cost a little bit more, but it created such an enhanced, substantially different experience than if we hadn't done it, that it made it worthwhile and it made it, it it gave the value. And what's interesting, the reason why I bring it up is when we think about premium experiences, we often talk about uh, targeting those those high net worth individuals, or maybe, you know, corporations who are coming, you know, for, for a buyout or those who are really big spenders Whereas a a very large portion of people who are partaking in premium experiences are regular people, maybe those who are are actually value seekers. When I say value, I don't just mean like kind of like Walmart, like just value or like discounts or anything like that, but something where they they recognize that if I pay more, it will be even more worth it. And I think that that's something uh, that applies directly to the attractions industry and very much applies to the sports industry, which is what our interview is about today.
2: Well, and I think a couple of the couple of the phrases that you said more than once in that explanation was, is it worth it, right? It was worth every dollar uh, to get that that premium experience in, in, uh, at Mardi Gras. It was, it was worth every penny to do whatever, right? And when you walk out of an experience like that and you can say that it was worth it, then you know, you've had a premium experience. Then, you know, you've had a luxurious experience or something that you can look at and say, Hey, this is something that's probably, um, you know, maybe beyond what I expected, but absolutely something that created a memory or created a a feeling that you're like, I want to do this again. This, this is, this is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And if I ever did do it again, I would never do it any other way. Like that is exactly what I would do. And I would recommend that other people do that as well. So it created that long lasting memory that that drives the kind of how I would recommend it in the future. Absolutely. So the guest that we have today is Amanda Verhoff. She is the president of the ALSD, the Association of Luxury Suite Directors. She is in the sports business. ALSD uh, is an association that serves um uh, stadiums and arenas and sporting events, and they focus specifically on the premium seating. So we get to hear about what the premium sports experience uh, is is very much like in this interview with Amanda.
2: <laughs> so somebody might be wondering if they just heard that, why is Amanda on the Attraction Pros podcast? Well, we go into depth in, the, in this interview about what is an attraction, right? You know, you and I both give our Uh, sort of definitions. But we also come to the conclusion, not surprisingly, that a stadium, an arena, a theater can be also an attraction based on how people are using it and what they're looking for out of that experience. And what's really, really cool to hear Amanda talk about is how the premium experience has evolved. And of course, it got my gears turning about my regular visits to theme parks or a zoo or an aquarium and how maybe with just a little thought, a little creativity, a little a little forethought, you could create a premium experience for people that, yeah, it may cost a little more and, and maybe um, something that brings in more revenue, which is a bonus, but it's also something that truly enhances the experience and creates different memories for people that they wouldn't have had otherwise.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that really should be everyone's homework from listening to this interview with Amanda is taking a look at your attraction at your experience and looking at opportunities to create different, perhaps more enhanced ways of experiencing the same thing. It should be the same thing that, that all guests get, get the chance to experience by purchasing general admission, but opportunities to continually enhance that uh, because there's, there's likely to be a buyer for it. And that was one of the other things we talked about is, is understanding
2: the buyer and offering those personalized bespoke experiences to a wide range of demographics. And one of the other things Amanda talked about was everybody's got to sing the same song, you know, when it comes to all the different people that are going to be interacting with your guests. And that could be people from various organizations right that are going to be interacting with them they don't care the guest doesn't care and we used to say this all the time at theme parks the guest doesn't care you know if the food is outsourced they don't care if the restroom crew is outsourced they don't care you know that dippin dots is a completely different company and they've got their own employees and their own uniform or whatever they don't care what they care about is if that dippin dots team member is on you know, X property, then that's the, that's the people they're going to point to when it's either good or bad. So we have to recognize that every single one of those team members is impacting the, the, the guest experience and the premium experience. And if everybody isn't kind of singing the same song, then that experience is going to suffer
1: and and the way that she described it i actually found to be very fascinating because that is that is something we we deal with in the attractions industry as well as they do in the the uh, sports and stadium and, and arena businesses as well but she also talked about how the companies might have They should have a lot of overlapping core values in terms of service and excellence and integrity, et cetera, Uh, but they might have some peripheral ones that that are different from that of the organization, but not in a competing way. And she gave examples of sustainability. This is a very high priority for certain organizations. DEI might be a a higher priority than the one who says sustainability is our biggest priority. So being able to actually kind of counterbalance those and not just saying the, the concessionaire needs to be exactly like the employee. Of, of the stadium or of, of the venue, but being able to see where those those overlapping values are, but acknowledging where there might be other priorities on the peripheral as well, I thought was, was a really fascinating point
2: that she made. Absolutely. So is it time to, to head up to the skybox and uh, get to this interview with Amanda? Let's kick it off.
1: <laughs> hey, Amanda, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. We are so excited to have you on today. How are you?
0: Good, guys. What's going on in the Attraction Pros world? You are. (laughs) I like it.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your answer was way better than mine. (laughs) Amanda, as we uh, jump into this here, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your career and your background.
0: Yeah, for sure. So grew up a sports nut, probably like some of your listeners, uh, ex-jock, went all through my life playing sports, enjoying sports, and now I have the beauty of working in the business of sports. So I have a a really uh, not sexy way of coming into the industry, to be honest with you. So I'll keep it pretty short and sweet. I majored in sport management at the University of Dayton and then got the opportunity to stay on for my fifth year of soccer uh, with the coach saying, hey, stay, start your master's. We'll help you out. And I'm like, "Okay, sure. So fast forward. And I am a teacher's uh, assistant in a class on sport management. And we have a guest speaker come into the room and at the end of it, he says, I'm looking for interns. And I'm like, okay, this guy just spent an hour talking about premium seating. I think I get it. All right, I'll raise my hand. And this was Phil Dorsey, who was the founder of ALSD at the time, was, was that guest speaker, raised my hand to be an intern uh, for his company. So started driving down to Cincinnati a couple of days a week, doing data entry and things like that for the conference. And that was 17 years ago. Uh, as I said, a really not exciting story, but I have sat in the same seat for those 17 years, just with my responsibilities growing. And of course, learning a whole lot more about what premium seating is, how it is an attraction. I, I think that's fair to say. Um, and yeah, I, I again, I get to talk about the business of sports day to day. And what I truly love is getting to interact with professionals like yourself that are perpetual learners and those that care about hospitality and customer service. Um, and so that kind of leads into to what I do now, which is working for the Association of Luxury Suite Directors, whose acronym has run its course. Uh, we are no longer the Association of Luxury Suite Directors. <laughs> that was a 33-year-old acronym that started just when luxury boxes, which at the time were called skyboxes, were starting. It was a budding industry, and couple sports venues had suites, and our again, my same chairman, Bill Dorsey, was at the time distributing a lifestyle magazine into stadiums and arenas, and kind of the light bulb went off in these really high-end skyboxes at the time. It's like, there's a marketplace for this. There's an industry here. And so in the early 90s, uh, there were a couple of venues back in the day that had them, but the early 90s was really when premium seating as an industry took off and what was a 17 person association back at the beginning of the 90s is now a 1300 person association made up of tons of sports teams, It's just about every professional sports team in this country, as well as colleges, racing venues, entertainment venues, basically any venue that has any type of premium seating leans into what ALSE does in the community that we have curated. Coolest part two is I get to talk business of sports here in this country, but we also have an international division. So uh, ALSC is an association and by and large, our, our uh, biggest thing that we hang our hat on is a big conference where we get all of these premium seating nerds and hospitality folks in a room to talk about, hey, how do we sell these what were suites that are now loge boxes and club seats and social viewing decks and all these different products and services. How do we essentially service our clients who are most of the time high-end individuals looking for incredible experiences. What do we do inside of our venues and frankly, outside of our venues to keep the loyalty of those clients? So long-winded answer of uh, you know who I am, but I thought ALSD was more important than who I am. So there you go.
2: <laughs> well, that's awesome. We will learn more about who you are as we go through the conversation, but I'm glad you mentioned the word loge because that was something that I remember from my childhood. My dad's company had a loge at, at the Cleveland Stadium, where we watched the uh, Cavaliers and the Cleveland Force soccer team and the Barons. I think Red Barons was the hockey team way back in the day. But anyway, um, that was something that I remember going to that loge box, I guess you would call it. So one of my curiosities that I would love to hear your, your input on is the difference between a loge, a skybox, the premium seating. Like, How do you delineate the difference between all those different experiences? <laughs>
0: Well, that's the thing, uh, and I think that you know one of the main questions that we continually ask ourselves is what does premium mean, right? And, and before it was what is what are luxury suites, but now kind of what is premium? Well, where that used to be skyboxes, where that used to be suites, and you know one of the reasons, not not solely the reason, but one of the reasons why they were built is that was essentially contractually obligated income for the teams. These boxes were built in companies. We're buying them for three years, five years, seven years, 10 years as an entertainment tool, incentive tool, you know, whatever you want to call it, a networking tool. And so that income was, again, contractually obligated to to that organization to be used to enhance the facility, the team, et cetera. Um, And so those were suites from back in the day. But fast forward, Matt, what you're saying is that there are a whole lot of other premium seating products. So the suites are still in existence, right? Those are basically 16 person, 20 person, 18 person, you know, 600, 800,000 square feet or more, where you you get a certain number of seats to view the game and then usually you have an entertainment area behind it. Those aren't going anywhere, but they are giving way to other opportunities because probably clients like you and me guys, like we may not have, well, you guys might, but I don't have 16 friends that I'm gonna invite to, to a game uh, you know, forty games a season. So premium now is more bite-sized assets, right? So the loge is generally four person or a six person, usually still semi-private, if not completely private. Sometimes there's a table, countertop, whatever in front of you. You are again semi-exposed, but you can be in a private area. But again, there's these bite-sized premium areas. So the loge, you get the so- the the sounds, the sights, the smells of what a stadium seat is, but a little bit more private and closed off. Then you have theater boxes, your opera boxes, and those are even more, I would call them private, where you get the feel of being in a luxury suite, but it's still semi-exposed and generally has a club or something behind it where you can go get your food and beverage, where you can go mingle and network and things like that. Now you've got suites, you've got loges, you've got opera boxes, you know, and so it's like, okay, what's next? There's ledges, there's the the seats up in the rings, there's uh, banquettes, which are basically just like these couch type of products that sit and overlook. There's social viewing decks. I mean, there's there's so many different premium seats these days, um, and lest we forget, the courtside seats are probably one of the best, right? So it's like, how do how do we define premium first? what is it? And I think you can put a, you know, a name on it, uh, what these, all these products are called, tie a pretty bow on it. But I think premium, Matt, is more than the product, right? It's the experience. It's not just where you're sitting. It's more of how you're experiencing the game.
1: What I love about that, all those things that you just listed, you're basically saying there's there's so many different ways to offer an enhanced experience for the event that is that is exactly the same no matter where you're sitting but there's just mm-hmm. it's it's the you know it's the first class seat on you know on the airplane you're getting to the exact same destination it's the exact same flight it's another way to experience it that offers more value therefore it's it it's also it can you know it can generate more revenue. You also mentioned the word luxury as well towards the beginning of that response and I'm curious if you can tell us Is there a difference between premium and luxury? And what is that?
0: Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for that, to be honest with you. And I'm going to answer it. I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I'll answer it in this way. I think premium luxury, high-end experience, I think is defined differently for different buyers. Okay. And it's similar to maybe the airline model that you just, that you just suggested. They might want, you know, privacy and things like that. They might not be want to be with the general, you know, admission clients in the back of the airplane, that type of thing. But in sports, the way I look at it, excuse me, is, you know, I might want, like Matt, I might want that four-person loge where I'm exposed to the sights and sounds and smells, but I still am private. I'm still getting my f delivered to me. And I'm still, you know, having a wonderful experience with four of my closest friends. That might be luxury to me. What might be luxury to somebody else is to get to the venue, whether it's you have valet that parks the car so they don't have to walk through, call the riffraff of you know the rest of the, the audience coming in. Maybe there's black car service from their house to the venue and back, where when they're leaving at night, they get a cup of coffee from the service staff because they have a long drive ahead of them, right? And once they're inside the venue, they're in a very private 16-person box, closed off with their name of the company on the outside of the suite or not, Only people that can enter are those folks that are being entertained by that particular client that night. You go in, the menu is exactly what they have ordered or is a specialty menu for that night. And, you know, those particular clients may drink a $400 bottle of wine on a normal night. So you need to let them either order that particular bottle off of your menu or let them bring it in, which is still you know, it's not exactly normal to do that now. But if your client is the high end, let them drink what they want to drink. Let them bring in what they want to bring in. Again, usually the food and beverage companies are providing it, but you got to think, okay, if my, well, a very important client wants to drink X, I'm going to provide it for them. On the other hand, luxury for somebody might just surely be convenience, right? And that could be down to the buying process. Luxury to me is being able to tool on my phone at 11 PM when nobody else is in their office, find a luxury suite for um, let's just call it my mom's 70th birthday coming up, find it for let's just call it 10 grand. I know I have 10 people that are ready to buy and I was able to buy it, order my food and beverage, get my receipt at 11 PM, laying in the comforts of my home with my dog next to me. That might be luxury because it was my time. I didn't want to spend the luxury of my time going through a process where, and again, I'll do respect for different types of processes, but my luxury is being in my house with my dog, being able to order something that I want right then, when I want, how I want. So it's premium and luxury. Those have to be determined by who the buyer is, what the client wants, right? So it, it comes down to understanding your buyer. And I know that that's very cliche, but also in my opinion, luxury, premium, et cetera, also means that the team, the food and beverage company, the security, the ticket takers, the parking attendants, all have to collaborate and be on the same page. Generally, for audience members that don't know, usually the team venue, food and beverage, parking, security, those might be different entities, right? But they have to be singing off of the same song sheet. So if there's not an underlying culture where this is our level of service, this is how we provide, this is who we provide to, you're going to have some gaps in how premium is delivered to your clients. So ending here is you as a team have to establish what does premium or luxury mean, and two, you have to define that by listening to who your clients are coming into the building night every night and how they want to, one, buy, two, experience, and three, frankly, leave the building.
2: So Amanda, one of the things you just mentioned that was not on my radar when it comes to premium seating was you talked about the car service, right? Which getting to the venue or leaving the venue, obviously it's a very important part of it, but not something I necessarily would have thought of when you think of premium seating, which again, goes back to that concept of what is premium to one person, what is luxury to another person. Um, and I really loved your your analogy too of, you know, if you can order from your phone at 11 o'clock at night, you know, that may be what is perfect for you as a, as a consumer, as an individual. Um, I'd like to go back though, just for a little bit, uh, because you mentioned that you were uh, an athlete, you probably still are an athlete uh, in life. And I'm curious how that has helped. Has that, has that, um, you know, informed some of the decisions that you, you make as the, you know, as, as someone who is now in premium seating, knowing that you've been on the, you've been on the court and now you're, you're helping people figure out those ways to best view the court. I'm curious if that experience has, has been impactful for you.
0: I think a lot of people who work in our industry are innately competitive. And I think that that's one of the things that athletics teaches anybody is the the competitive nature. And I see that in our members Maybe not specifically me. I'm not working in a venue, you know, all day every day. But what I see is all of these venues competing to to provide that next level of service. They're also, which I think athletes are, they're they're perpetual learners. They're trying to get better every single day. And so I think that there are some similarities there between athletes and those who work in hospitality. Is you understand, you learn. It's quick paced. It's you know understanding the you know offense and defense, if you will, uh, of how you need to be proactive with hospitality, but also reactive, right? With, if something happens, how do I how do I um, understand what just happened and adapt to it or provide to the client? So I, I think there's some similarities. I don't know that I'd be necessarily the best person to um, ask the question up. I think it would be a great question for those that are working in the industry to see if, to see if there's some, uh, you know, translation, if you will. But I will say, when I was uh, training for a marathon, I would often, think about hospitality, right? And that sounds so weird. I would like write articles in my head about hospitality and like about the association. So I think if you give yourself the outlet to start thinking and like maybe it's listening to one of your books while you're running or something like that, give yourself the free space to think about how you can kind of level up your your level of customer service, if you will.
1: That's funny because when I was training for a marathon, I was not thinking about hospitality. <laughs>
0: I was thinking about just powering
1: through training, but that is, I'll keep that in mind for the next one.
0: Well, you got to um, keep your mind off of it, off of the pain and everything else. So, audiobook true. goes in, or, you know, again, I wrote an article in my head when I, I forgot it all once I got back, but that's the kind of, you know, silly stuff I think about my run.
1: That's true. There were probably some podcasts that I listened to that probably, there you go, keep, keep my mind energized there. Yeah. I want to go back to one of the things you mentioned, uh, understanding the buyer. And you talked about that from uh, looking at what is premium, what is luxury for them. I wonder if maybe we can go a little bit deeper into that. Of, uh, I would say the the importance of understanding the buyer that then allows you to tailor a more bespoke experience for them that that gives a, a stronger sense of value, stronger sense of satisfaction, and and even connection with uh, with not only the brand and and the team or the venue, but also the individuals who are delivering
0: the experience as well. It's. I think one of the biggest challenges is understanding all of your buyers. And I'll start with, first of all, every client that's coming into your building, every fan that's coming into your building now wants the Instagram moment, right? And so you have to provide that moment for all of your GA clients, your general admission clients, but then you have to somehow upscale it for your premium clients. Now what we call our VVIP clients, like we have to still have a differentiation of the experience whether it's the real estate the product that you're sitting in or whether it's the experience but again the thing that i was saying earlier is that the all the all these buyers are different right where in the past the corporations were the ones that were buying these suites and they were using them for let's just say in an arena you know, 40 games uh, and let's just call it an NBA team and some ancillary events, Disney on ice, whatever it is. They get those in their package. They are using them for client entertainment or family purposes or employee incentives year over year. Okay, that's fair. Fast forward though, when one, the infrastructure of stadiums was now listening to what the people wanted, but also new buyers were coming in. It is becoming, and I think we have met the challenge here, It's not, I'm not going to say the the, uh, corporate clientele are not buying anymore, but the the net has now been cast wider to buyers who can buy here and there now and then. Young affluent buyers who don't want the 40 games in the Disney on Isis, they want a special event and they're willing to pay for it one time, two times, maybe three times. So we are having to understand our, our buyers and by and large create products that work for them. And I'm not talking the infrastructure, right? Like the suites, the loges, there's only, there's so many products that you can actually sell, but you need what you need to sell to them is, do they want a flex package? Do they want to share that suite of 40 games? Maybe they want to share it with four others, four other companies or four other affluent individuals, then break the package down for them, give them 10 games and throw in X, Y, Z with that experience. Maybe you do still have a corporate client, but what that corporate client wants is something different. At every single 40 game that they have purchased. Well, that's a tall order, right? Because there is there is some F&B that is just run of the mill that you get every single game. So again, I think it's it's more the amenities and more the experiences that you have to sit down and understand each individual buyer. And that is the tallest task, in my opinion, is that if you have, let's just call it uh, 150 suites, you have to sit down with all of those clients and understand, how do I satisfy their objective coming into the, the suite every single night? And then add on top of that, the suites that you don't sell on a lease base, which is, is again, becoming more common, all of these ancillary buyers that are buying a suite here and there now and then, a company who, who might want it for 10 games, but not 40 games, understanding what they want is one thing. And then number two, how they want to buy it is the other. You know, one of the, there's a couple of cool things going on now in the industry, you can buy suites online, you can buy premium online. There's also uh, another company that we work with that is like a social sharing network of, hey, I'm going to this event, I just bought my four tickets, and they have a link that you put out on social media that says, hey, all my Facebook friends, I'm going to this, you should join me, here's what my tickets are. So they're helping you get the buyers, and then you have to understand who the buyers are that walk in the door. The last piece that I'll say is historically, and I guess maybe like notoriously, it's sometimes been hard to know who's sitting in your premium seats. Not necessarily those that are that have purchased the Lowe's, the clubs, et cetera. You know who's buying those. But if you have a 16-person suite and your client, let's just call them AT&T, invites different prospects in every single night, well, you have 40 different people in that suite every single night that AT&T invited that you might not know. So don't you think it would behoove you to maybe also go into that suite or have your suite attendant trained to hear, oh, they said this, here's who's in the suite tonight. Oh, hey, let's do a giveaway where they, you know, scan a QR code and put their information in, right? So it's also about curating more buyers and then having to understand them as well. So I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there. Um, suffice it to say it is, I think, a, a tall task to understand all of our different buyers these days. And frankly, I don't think it's different than other industries, but it is a change for us having to have an evolved industry on the the real estate itself that you're selling and the amenities and the buying process.
2: Amanda, there's another tall task that I'd like to, to, to dive into. And I say it's a tall task because I've experienced this from the theme park world where, you know, you have the theme park employees and then you have some other contractors on site that are not necessarily, you know, part of that theme park, but we have to create a, a seamless experience and you mentioned it earlier where they may go through a couple of different companies before they get to that skybox or that premium seating experience. So how do you make sure that they are all are singing from the same sheet of music and providing a premium, premium experience along the way?
0: Well, you hit the nail on the head is that the, the training has to be similar, if not the same. And there are trainers out there who will go, you know, top to bottom, bottom to top, whatever you call it. They will do the hourly and the temps. They will do the the leaders. They will do all the different entities. And they and this is very common um, for new new builds, right? You're opening up a building. Everybody has to understand this is how we operate. These are our standards. What's harder are culturally um, or like uh, how you service is going to be different, right? Like let's just say Team X, right, it has food and beverage company. Why? Well, the food and beverage company might have their own set of standards and their own culture where the team might have their own. So it's not necessarily necessarily establishing the exact same culture, the exact same standards, but at least standards that can be understood as unified or collaborative. Because when you think about it, and you know this from the attractions world too, they're pointing the finger at the attraction, not the contractor right? So if I get bad food and beverage at venue X, I'm like, oh man, that team's food was kind of sub, it wasn't the team, you know, it's not necessarily the team, it's the food and beverage provider. So the team, you know, kind of has to encourage and take them, in my opinion, the team and venue need to take those other contractors and entities under their wing, if you will, and establish baseline standards and then build from there to where, okay, if this team, and let's just call it Delaware North, the food and beverage company, have standards that are are very similar, but one is very high on sustainability and the other is very high on uh, DE&I. All right, let's come together and and figure out what are our top level uh, social cause that we're working towards is. Maybe it's both, right? But I think you're exactly right. It's, there has to be a collaborative effort to make sure that your standards are where each of those groups need it to be. Yeah. And I'll say one other thing too, and this is a little bit an aside, when we're talking about, let's just call it frontline workers, okay, so we'll talk about ticket takers, security, suite attendants, those that are not necessarily full-time premium seating staffs. Something that I learned at one of our conferences last year is that we should place a heavier emphasis on giving them a premium experience, meaning Think about uh, a temporary workspace uh, lounge, right? Like the Ticket Taker's Lounge or something like that. You probably go in, there's some folding chairs, maybe some FMB set out. Why not design that particular area like a suite? And I'm not, not saying that everyone has the budget to do so, but don't you think that those temporary workers who one of the challenges is keeping, retaining those hourly workers, don't you think that psychologically they would feel better if they were taking their rest break in a luxury suite type area? maybe put a Nintendo Switch in there, maybe put some really good food and beverage in there. If they understand that you're treating them as a premium client, don't you think that they will then treat your premium clients the way that they should be? So I think there's also this this culture of care that has to go throughout the entire venue staff, culture standards. It has to go from, you know, whether it's bottom to top, top to bottom, make your employees feel valued and then they will make your clients feel just as valued.
1: Well said, and and even if it's not at the same level of luxury or premium as the the suite for the client, knowing that it's elevated than kind of the break room that you described with the folding chairs and you know maybe there's the coffee maker that you know is just burnt coffee kind of all day long. Something that's even just a little bit better than kind of what is sort of honestly accepted to be standard can yeah. significantly you know enhance the employee experience. On that note, curious if you can actually talk a little bit about maybe some of the challenges that uh, that the industry is facing in terms of staffing, which I, I've got to imagine is probably gonna be very similar to what we've seen in the attraction space just in the last few years, in terms of uh, just wage demand and growth and difficulty in finding and attracting top talent uh, and what the industry is doing to, to help get around those challenges.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think I, I mentioned in my last answer the temporary staff, the hourly staff, et cetera, making them feel just as valued as your premium clients to take care. But the next one is, no surprise, it's generational. Uh, A funny story, I I do mock interviews for my alma mater. And so I I, in one day, I think these were sophomores that I was interviewing, and at the end, I always ask, do you have any questions for me? And this girl, real sharp, uh, you can tell, she's got a future in the industry, and she asks me a question about our workplace culture. And I was like, "Dang, girl, good for you!" And I, I didn't know how to answer it. Because, <laughs> you know? like, I think about that for a second. That we don't have a, you know, a, a standard in a culture and whatnot. But I was that a sophomore in college asking what our work, what our, what our work culture was. Well, that tells me that the generation coming in might be something a little different than the generation that is currently leading. So, I think one of the challenges is the blend of the workforce now. And I think one way that we can overcome that is, and again, this is very cliche, but meeting them where they're at, right? So something else that I learned through some of the conversations I've had are uh, incentives, right? So if you get a a younger person who's coming in their entry level, probably they're going to work there for a couple of years. Maybe it's a stepping stone, maybe not, but you know this person is a rock star and you think you want to hold on to them. So how do you incentivize that person, get that person to stay, retain them? Well, all due respect, it's not cutting off their tie if they meet their numbers. It's not giving them a jersey with a number on it that they can hang in their cubicle if they have met their sales goals. I think those are, are largely, in the past, these dry dry, um, you know, like r- rinse and repeat type of incentives. You might want this young person to enhance what they want to enhance in terms of their uh, personal and professional development. So this young person comes in, maybe they want you to help underwrite portion of their MBA education. They also might appreciate if you gave them in a 40-hour work week, four to five hours to actually work on that. Don't you think that incentive, number one, would help them, giving them what they want, giving them the the schooling, but also don't you think on the other end that would help you? Sitting an employee who is getting their MBA and might gain some business acumen, who then is probably gonna have to deal with high-end clients that own corporations on the back end, Right. So the incentive can be twofold. It can be for them. It can be for you. Or, you know, perhaps you encourage, you have a, I don't want to call it like a work study type of thing, where you encourage your employees to take a week down at, I'm just going to use some brands here, a week down at Disney or Ritz or some company that has a robust training program. Give them that. That will help them. Again, it will help them, but it will also help you. So give them things that are again enhancing what they want, but also aren't going to be just that general incentive. It might not be money for the younger generation coming in. It might also be an incredible culture where sustainability, climate change, DEI, social uh, issues are you know sensory issues. Like some of that stuff is, it's not only important but it's critical to to these people's lives now. And you know saving our planet <laughs> is no longer you know an option for how we do our business. And I think the younger generation is learning that. So that's one of of the challenges is how you lead that younger demographic. And I think that, you know, for better or worse, they're on their phones all the time, but they're actually learning a lot. You know, we think they're scrolling on Instagram all day long. Well, they're not all, right? Some of them are are really in tune to the social, uh, you know, and all these psychological things that could help them. So just something to think about and just one of the, the challenges of the industry and how we're getting over it.
2: Well, and what I take from that really is about personalization. And really, it's no different than getting to know your buyer, right? Getting to know your team member. So if that team member does like the jersey, great. But if they don't, if they want their NBA underwritten, or the, if there's something else that we haven't even thought of, why aren't we giving them a premium luxury experience as a team member? Just like you mentioned with the break room for the, for the frontline team members and so on. So this, this goes into a lot of what Josh and I talk about how these things are so very similar, you know, in terms of the, the guest experience and the employee experience. Um, but I want to see if we can we can pull back just for a second, because you said something earlier that we know we had in our in our starter questions. And you said that these these venues are an attraction. So I want you to talk to us a little bit more about how you feel like a a sports stadium could qualify as an attraction.
0: Well, and I told you I would throw it back at you to ask how you <laughs> how you define an attraction. So, define it for me and then I will then I'll walk into that one.
2: So, I don't know if this is the right definition, but this is how I define an attraction. It's something that people are attracted to. That's it. I mean, they go to it for an experience. They go to it for something that they can't do in their home and it's something where they should have this is a big word, but some sort of transformational experience, whether it's watching a sports uh, uh, event, they're going to a concert, they're going to a theme park, they're riding a ride they've never ridden before. So to me, that's what an attraction is. I don't know, Josh, do you have a different definition that, that might help? I think it's along
1: the same lines. I, you know, out of home experience, you touched on that, uh, that serves the purpose of leisure and entertainment in that mm-hmm. it's, you know, this is not, uh, we're, we're going to attractions because we want to. We don't need to. We are going because we want to. Same thing with a sporting event or a concert or Disney on Ice. Uh, it is something to that. It's an intangible experience happening in a physical place. That the core product is a memory of that experience. Uh, and, and I think that there is a lot of a lot of crossover. I think I think by those definitions, I think that we're you know we're, we've arrived at, at the answer. Right? Yes. <laughs> it's an interaction.
0: Thank you. You answered and it.
1: I, I, I see kind of the the intertwining happening all the time. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan. Comerica Park opened in 2000. There's a Ferris wheel and a carousel there. Uh, I live in Chicago now. I'm I'm a big Cubs fan. I live close to Wrigley Field. In the off season, when the stadium's not being used for baseball, it's turned into winterland, particularly around around the holiday season. There's a Ferris wheel and a carousel and a train. And my son rode his first amusement ride by himself in center field at Wrigley. That was, I mean, by... Definition. That was an amusement park, which is an attraction, basically. So I think it's, it's all, it's all there. It's all the same. And we have premium experiences and offerings as well to, to offer in an enhanced way of of the intangible experience.
0: Well, and I think uh, you both said it a little bit at the beginning. Is what are? It's something that people are willing to spend their hard-earned time and money on, that is outside of what they you know are doing on the daily. I think sports venues have become more sophisticated in how they are attractions these days before they were built purely for sport, right? The ballpark was built as a ballpark. And then on its dormant days, it was dormant. He wouldn't come into the venue those days. It is now, as you said, Josh, becoming, they're becoming more sophisticated in how they use it on what we call non game day events, excuse me, non game days or on dark days. There is no reason why, and again, this is opinion-based, but there is no reason why a billion-dollar venue should be sitting dormant when there's no team on the field. First of all, for many people going into a sporting venue these days, the game's the backdrop anyway. The game isn't always the key thing. Yes, I understand that a lot of the sales, a lot of the tickets are bought based on wins, losses, your uh, affiliation to the team. It's tribal. But a lot of times you're going to the game and you're sitting and experiencing the food and beverage. You're doing the zip line uh, down in Atlanta. You're going and doing the kids zone because your kid can't sit in the seat for that long. So they have had to become attractions more than they were in the past. And I think they are doing that uh, to a premium level too. And there are different experiences. I'll, I'll go with uh, Green Bay, for instance. They are They have a tall task because they're in the winter. You may not wanna go outside in Green Bay. But guess what? They built uh, sledding hill. They built outdoor activities that are built purely for Green Bay weather in the wintertime. So they have made their venues into attractions. So I think our sports venues attractions. Yes. Are they more attractions now than they were yesterday? A hundred percent. There is too much to do in these venues. And when you think about it, if I'm a company buying a, a suite and I use it for those sporty games and I'm like, this is a really cool, small setup for a corporate meeting. Hey, Lightball, can I host my meeting at Wrigley Field? I sure can. Call up. You might even get that included in your contract. You might have to order the food and beverage on top, right? But how cool to invite, whether it's your company or your prospects, hey, our meeting's at Wrigley Field today. Wow. You know, it's we're in the hero business. You know, in attractions, certainly they have the amusement side and all of that. We've got the heroes. You know, like people grow up and, and again, for, for better or worse, like we still are paying a lot of money to see grown men throw a ball whatever for better or worse but that's the truth we still are wearing autographed jerseys and you know getting to to be courtside next to our favorite players so i I think i may have even said it in 2008 and 9 when you know sports was a luxury at the time to have those but they were almost recession proof because people wanted an outlet they had to do something that gave them the joy that amusements and attractions do and i don't think that that sports is going anywhere. I do think we have to again adapt what our attraction as in sports venue looks like day to day and seasonally as well.
1: I think that ties really nicely too with the topic of understanding the buyer is knowing there's always going to be those traditionalists who I I see people at Wrigley field all the yep. time they've got their scorecard and their pencil and they are sitting in their seat from first pitch. the end of the game and they are watching the game and they leave right they don't don't care about anything else going on around it uh but being able to to see the demographic and talk about generational there's the employee side. there's also the guest side you talk about having that instagram worthy moment focusing it as as an attraction allows for for more of an experience as well as enhanced revenue opportunities as well
0: well the enhanced revenue is huge uh again you're you're building these billion dollar venues and there's got to be there's got to be other ways to you know, pick that. I'll yeah. just call a spade a spade there. Especially yeah. too. <laughs> go ahead.
1: I was going to say, especially football, it's like eight, nine days a year and maybe some concerts
0: throughout the summer. But if, yeah, but if you could give them the experience to kick a field goal on the field or, you know, now they're selling tours of these buildings, well, who wouldn't want to go and take a tour of, uh, you know, Cowboy Stadium, at and right? Like that's some, somewhere that maybe people won't necessarily get to sit in those premium seats or go see the Hall of Fame areas, but heck, I can buy a $20, $40 tour pass and go see all of that on uh, on a day off. There might not be a a game on the field, but that's what I'm going for. Uh, And I think, too, like, and I'll go back to the attractions just a little bit more. If you've been to a WNBA game, if you've seen women's college basketball these days, like, those are spectacles now. And there is so much excitement, but they have also put time and effort into curating the experience for that demographic that's going to come see whether it's the WNBA or women's college basketball or whatever, there are certain things that they're doing to attract that audience. On the flip side, so is the NFL. You don't think that they're making a killing off of showing Taylor Swift in a suite every single time. So like it's it's almost as if we're on this convergence time where entertainment and sport is now becoming one. And I think it's it's a really cool time to be an athlete. The other piece of that is the brands can be, can be um, that I said, present outside of the venue too think about caitlin clark from you know iowa right now like you'll see her on instagram every single day shooting threes i want to go to a game so teams are also using the ancillary branding and the organic and nil branding to enhance what they do as well so it's it's figuring out how to get your brand out there more than just during the season of course you have your traditionalist like you said but then it's getting people interested on what might be non-traditional type of uh, events and things like that
2: too. So Amanda, you mentioned that, you know, back in the day, the sports stadiums were built for sports first, right? The game first, and then kind of everything else was, was ancillary to that. I remember going to Kyle field uh, for Texas A&M. And I think literally that was built for events. It was built for premium seating. It was built all of that. And then they happened to put a football um, field in the middle of it. Because I got a tour of it, right? And there was no game going on there. I was doing some some customer service work with them. And uh, I mean, the the sky boxes, the premium seating, whatever you want to call it, were amazing. And to your point, I would love to have a business meeting in there. I mean, it was just just an amazing facility. And to to hear about all the things they talked about that have nothing to do with the football game, it was incredible. Mm-hmm. And they only have seven home games a year, which I yes. thought was was crazy. Um, but I do want to um Ask you something about your experiences. Um, you know, Josh and I talk about our kind of busman's holidays all the time when we go to to theme parks and things. I'm curious, what's one of or some of the best premium experiences that you've had, maybe on your own or with your family or with your friends?
0: Right, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but any trip, vacation, outing that my husband plans is luxury. And here's why I don't do anything. We pick the destination and six months later, I'm there experiencing that destination. My husband, God love him. He is like a researcher, right? So he'll pick the destination and a week after we pick it, he will know the 10 best restaurants, exactly where we're going for our excursions, where the parking is, where we're staying, all all of these things. So we have had some of the most incredible experiences ever because somebody planned it bespoke for me, right? And for our family, he has done Disney, right? He knew uh, how to get the bands. He was up at 5 a.m. setting us up for the, uh, what is it, the the Fast Pass. He was up at the right time on the right rides getting us the Fast Pass and knew exactly right after that ride when we would need to be at the Toy Story restaurant to get the best hash browns at the particular time, right? Like that's luxury to me. Feel. Right. <laughs> Useless when I'm on these trips because I'm just kind of following. You know, I got my backpack on and I'm just kind of following him around. You know, we did New York uh, last year for Christmas with my family and my sister's family and my parents and all that. And it was a bit of a hey, let's march here and hold on. I need to sit down for a second. But he had it planned almost to the hour of when we'd be at Rockefeller and then when we'd be at dinner and when we'd be at the Broadway show and the bodega that we need to stop and go for, you know, for snacks afterwards culminated in Paris last year. We took a trip for work. I was lucky enough to go overseas uh, to Manchester. He came with, and then we went down to Paris after that. He found, I read it in a magazine the other day, the oldest chocolate shop in Paris. He found it and took us on a walking route to find that. So this is a very long winded way of saying, if you can get somebody to plan what you envision to be the most incredible time ever, let them do it and then deliver it to you. That is luxury. Right, And I think that our sports teams can do that. They just have to be thoughtful about how they do it. And so I think what, in this, you didn't ask this question, but I think one of the things that is really critical for people getting into premium who want to deliver a great premium experience is you have to understand it yourself. A lot of us in the industry, we're not necessarily born with that silver spoon in our mouth. We didn't know innately what, what luxury was at the beginning. And so we somehow had to figure it out, right? How do we do that? There could be some really simple ways to get you there. Start at an upscale coffee shop. Why? The speed of service, the clients wanting what they want exactly right, their order exactly right at the time they want it, and they don't have a minute to spare. Figure that out. Do it with a drive through Work at a hotel. You're going to hear all kinds of stories in a hotel of what they want, what they don't want. Why was my iron under the sink when it should have been in the closet. You know, there's things that you pick up, lingo that you pick up, client um, uh, preferences that you pick up. And you start to have, when I'll I'll steal someone else's line, uh, it's anticipatory service. You start to have that after working in an upscale coffee shop, a hotel, a bar. The beauty about working in a bar, you learn how to converse, right? As an introvert, I wish I had done one of those, whether it's a coffee shop or a bar or learning how to cocktail early. Because if I'm going to deliver that experience, well, I got to figure out what they want by talking to them. But I got to get myself into the into the, the the rhythm of understanding. All right, read the cue. That person's reading a book; they don't want to talk to me and tell me what they want right now. Okay, they put it down; they're headed over here. Okay, now's my chance, right? So it's just picking up all these cues to figure out how to deliver an experience, premium, luxury, whatever it is. So sorry, it was a twofold answer to a one part question you asked.
1: No, that's that's fantastic uh this has been uh, just so insightful and I feel like we've blinked and we're getting close to the end of the interview here but uh Amanda if people want to uh, learn more about alsd or if they want to get a hold of you directly where would you send them
0: yeah for sure so uh LinkedIn for sure Amanda verhoff is the last name and my email which is really hard to remember Amanda at alsd.com again it is that acronym um dot com Amanda at ALSD.com. So there it is. Always go to our website too. Um, But I just, I consider doing this part of my job so fun. And so if anybody wants to, to talk shop about how to be a perpetual learner of delivering best hospitality, I would love to talk to you.
2: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amanda, for your time today. It's been wonderful. And for everybody out there who's watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe
1: so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes.
0: For more information, visit attractionpros.com.